Hi, my name is Peter Kaiser. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Retinal Physician Magazine, and I would like to welcome you to the Retinal Physician Podcast. Today, I'm joined by one of my really good friends, Christina Wang. She is an associate professor of ophthalmology at the Baylor College of Medicine and the Cullen Eye Institute. Welcome, Christina. Thank you, Peter, for having me on your podcast. And it was great to see you recently in San Antonio at the ASRS meeting. Yeah, it was really nice, actually, to finally see friends and colleagues uh, for the first time in two years. And really, that I think that dovetails into what I wanted to discuss with you today on this podcast, which is in this COVID era, um, we don't oftentimes get to see our patients as much as we would like. And so I wanted to kind of focus on sort of how you manage patients, first of all, in the COVID era. We'll start with the first part of it and then in the second part. So at the beginning of the pandemic, when mm-hmm. when oftentimes offices were, were really just looking at emergency patients, how did you see your patients and, and, and what did you change in your practice? Yeah, it feels like forever that we've been in this pandemic, but you're right. Thinking back to spring of 2020, around March, that's when the pandemic really hit and we really were forced to make significant changes to our workflow in the clinics. And a lot of the ORs were actually shut down for a period of time. And I bet you it was the same for you as well. But it's tricky because with retina patients, they aren't necessarily patients that can go long periods of time without being uh, surveyed, without being treated. You and I both have many, many injection patients, and they count on those injections to be able to maintain visual acuity. And steps back can't always be regained. So I tried really hard, Peter, to actually keep my wet macular degeneration patients and DME patients close. I would contact them. I tried the telemedicine uh, approaches to communicate with them just to even gauge how their visual acuity was doing, even though that's fairly subjective. I, you know, But most of them, I actually tried to get them to still come into the office. And what I did instead was I really tried to reassure them that we had hygiene practices in place social distancing measures in place to really make it as safe and as expeditious of an experience as possible. That's what I did. But I I tried hard to not disrupt their regimen, whether it was simply surveillance or actually bringing them in for those those injections. Yeah, we did something similar at Cole. We we certainly didn't. um, We we tried to limit the amount of time they spent. So so we actually purchased more OCT devices Mm -hmm. and and put them all over the office that way, you know, you weren't waiting in line with a whole bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing we did, and I'm interested to hear what you did was, you know, if patients were on shorter acting treatments, we pushed to change them to the longer acting treatments, even if they were doing great uh, on the shorter acting treatment. I'm just curious if you guys did the same thing. I did not. I, I actually kept most of my patients on whatever medication they had been on. And I actually was less apt to switch during this time period. And I'll tell you why, because I can see it both ways, right? If a patient was doing well on bevacizumab, maybe on a flibrocept, they can get a couple extra weeks. So I totally understand that reasoning. But I think that patients respond differently to medications. We've seen that, right? There are certain patients that... Um, may not necessarily always do better with a certain X product X versus product Y. 
And because we were trying to limit the time that they had to come in to be checked, et cetera, if they were doing well on a certain therapy, I just kept them on that. One of the things we talked about a lot in the space of DME for those patients is, you know, I use, I'm, I'm a big user of steroids and incorporating steroids with anti-VEGF in the treatment of DME. And so a lot of people were wondering, well, did you end up switching a lot of patients to steroids? And again, I use the same reasoning. I like the idea of that, but when you switch someone to steroids, we know that about a third can have an IOP response. And I didn't want the chance that one of my patients got nervous about coming in and I wasn't able to catch that, that event. So I actually didn't. I try to pretty be pretty conservative and minimize the amount of switching during this period of time. But I, but I totally get the arguments on both sides. Well, you brought the point of teleophthalmology, which I think many of our colleagues, not necessarily in retina, but in in particular in plastics and, and cornea, for instance, uh, really did a lot of teleophthalmology visits and was very successful with it. I think for those of us in retina, it's it's a little bit more difficult. But I'm curious what you think about, say, home OCT and how had we had home OCT, how we would have used that in the pandemic. Yeah, I totally agree. So I thought that I, I also tried. I'm a big fan of of teleophthalmology. I'm actually one of the physician champions for our large diabetic retinopathy screening program here. You've got to remember with these programs, as successful as they are, they still require the patient to come in, sit in front of a whatever machine. We're starting to incorporate OCT, but most of the time it's fundus photography based. So you have that image to base your judgment on. We didn't have that over Zoom, which is what the platform was integrated into our electronic medical record system that I tried to do these tele-ophthalmology visits on. And that makes it very difficult when you can't get an objective visual acuity that you feel comfortable in its accuracy for, when you can't get an OCT, which we're very dependent on now for a lot of our decision making. It becomes very, you don't, you, you feel like you can't really trust it. You can't trust necessarily what the patient is saying. So it's hard. And it made me think a lot about this emerging technology of home OCT. I'm very excited about this. I think that home OCT, which is a device that patients can use at home to basically take OCTs whenever they want, daily, multiple times a day, every other day, is really going to be a game changer and really impact not just the way we monitor patients, but the way we understand fluid and how it responds to the treatments that we give now and the longer durability treatments that are forthcoming. So I think that if we had a home OCT, for example, for these patients that I was trying to manage and follow, I would feel a lot better of them telling me, Dr. Wang, I don't feel comfortable coming out into the public yet. I could just look on their OCT and see that, hey, you're, you're looking good there. And I would feel much more confident about reassuring them that that was okay. Instead of the dilemma that I found myself in, which was when patients would say, I think my vision's okay, but it was blurry the other day. Should I come in or not? And you know, these are elderly patients. A lot of my patients in the diabetic space are you know, relatively immunocompromised. We know that in the COVID pandemic, we learned a lot about how diabetics are more susceptible to severe disease or even death if they get infected. And it puts a lot of burden on us too to make that best decision for that patient. So I'm super excited because home OCT has received a breakthrough status from the FDA in, I think in 2018. And they're in the process of filing, as you know, Peter, with the FDA. So it's possible that we could have this technology very soon in our hands. And I think it'll do a lot of good pandemic or not. Yeah, I mean, looking at some of the images from the home OCT device, as well as some of the really major advances the companies have made 
using artificial intelligence and machine learning to really analyze those images within a device. In the past, they'd just be kind of sending everything to the doctor. And a lot of us just don't have the time to look at that by, by really cutting that down, using artificial intelligence to really just push to us changes. And, and when the patient really may need to come in, uh, really is going to hopefully save us time. But the other thing that I think is important, it actually may change the way we deliver care. You know, a lot of us use treat and extend, but but as needed treatment may may work. I thought I want to get some of your thoughts on sort of how maybe home OCT is going to change our treatment uh, and the way we deliver treatment in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're so spot on with that. You know, all of our trials, if you look across AMD or even DME, we know that these studies have shown time and time again that the more injections you get, the better your visual acuity outcomes. And that's why we saw such phenomenal visual acuity improvements in our landmark trials like Anchor and Marina and the View 1, View 2 studies and Vivid and Vista for DME, right? But the, the truth of the matter is that patients cannot sustain that, right? You can sustain it for a year in a trial where you have coordinators shepherding your visits and you know, um, you get the red carpet rolled out for you when you're coming in as a study patient. But when you're talking about a time span of 20 years that a patient has to come in 12, 13 times a year, it is simply not sustainable for many, many reasons. You and I are both familiar with the social burdens that it costs our patients, not to mention not to mention financial, and not to mention also the fact that they're coming in, waiting in our clinics for a long time and getting a needle in their eye. I mean, definitely not fun at all. And so I think that Treat and Extend really was born to try to reach a middle ground between not compromising too much on the visual acuity outcomes for these patients, but at the same time, reducing the treatment burden a little bit. But the problem with treat and extend is that you're still going long intervals of time without seeing patients. You're still going weeks at a time without seeing patients without a real knowledge of what's happening during that interval. And of course, you know, everyone thinks about PRN. PRN is not used that frequently in the United States as a treatment approach, although I do have some, some colleagues who do use it. You know, the problem with PRN is that there have been studies that have shown good, acceptable visual acuity results. But if you look closely at how those patients are monitored, the classic pure definition of PRN is that you're coming in on a monthly basis to be surveyed. So yes, the treatment burden is reduced, but the visit burden generally is not. And that's like I already mentioned, a big part of the challenge and obstacle for patients. And so when PRN was brought out and translated into the real world space, if you look at the real world PRN types of studies that we've had, the outcomes are really undoubtedly inferior to what we see with treat and extend and, and monthly fixed. And that's why we haven't turned to it as much because we don't want to sacrifice letters for our patients. We don't want to let them lose vision that they may not be able to regain. But the, the, when you look, think about that, the, the challenging part of PRN is that we are still going these long stretches in the real world without seeing patients. And that could completely change if we have a device that we're able to set in our patient's home, a small footprint that allows them to easily scan their eyes. It takes just a couple minutes to scan their eyes every day. If we can monitor on a more frequent basis, daily or every other day or whatever it's going to be, and see how they're doing, I think we would all feel a lot more confident, number one, about allowing um, a, a kind of using a, treat, uh, a PRN type of treatment approach 
And uh, I think that, honestly, I think that the visual acuity outcomes will more parallel those of a fixed or treat and extend regimen. Now, these are my thoughts. I want to say there hasn't been a lot of study done in this area yet, but I'm sure there will be as this device becomes available to us. And I'm just super excited because it could be, you know, it could really um, be a paradigm shift in the way our treatment approaches are uh, selected for, for these patients. Yeah, you're 100% right. I mean, clinical trials, fixed dosing, then, then Phil mm -hmm. Rosenfeld gave us the Prato study. Everybody said PRN's the best thing in the world. Then we realized with CAT and other studies, not so great. Treat and extend mm -hmm. is what most of us do. But I think you're right. I think we're going back to PRN when we have a device that will allow us to do PRN safely mm -hmm. and effectively. Now, it's, it's fall 2021, uh, so we're, we're not certainly at the end of the COVID pandemic by any stretch of the imagination. But I wonder, how is your practice going now? Are you guys back to your usual numbers? You know, what are some of the things that you basically implemented during the COVID pandemic uh, in the spring of last year versus what are still being done now? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we are, in terms of clinic volumes, we are pretty much back to, um, to full volumes. In fact, there was a period of time, Peter, and you probably experienced this at Cole as well, where we were actually extremely busy because all of the backlog from patients who were nervous about coming during that period, now that they're vaccinated or they feel better about you know um, how, how the world is, kind of led to a rush of them coming in during this period of time. So it's been very busy from that standpoint. I will say something that is not related to necessarily what we're talking about today, but is interesting. And I found out when I was speaking with some of our friends and colleagues at ASRS is, is happening a lot around the United States. But the COVID pandemic has really shifted um, employment and uh, the and the workforce and, and who's available. We had, a, unfortunately, um, a loss of some of our staffing at some of our hospitals that has been challenging because even though our systems are ready to accept patients, go back to full block time, start operating the way we used to, we don't necessarily have the staffing to do that yet. So in terms of, uh, from a surgical standpoint, that's still been a challenge for some of our facilities, but uh, we'll get there. And I'm excited that finally patients are starting to feel more comfortable returning to the clinics. I mean, how about you guys? Yeah, I agree. So the the volumes are, are, are through the roof right now. Uh, and as you said, our workforce for the most part, has stayed pretty stable, but but with the increase in volume, we actually need to hire, and, and we're having trouble hiring uh, new technicians, new nurses, uh, and I think that's that's nationwide. That I don't think that's uh, geographically located. Yeah. The other thing I'm noticing, and I, I wanted you to kind of comment on this. You know, you have some patients who, throughout the pandemic, really showed up when they 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 had their N95 mask on and their gloves on, and they showed up. Uh, on time, but there are others who are just terrified to come in and they missed a lot of visits. And I, I'm wondering how uh, those patients are doing. Uh, were you able to get them back now that they're, 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 they're starting to come back to clinic and, and how they're doing? Yeah, it's variable. So it was interesting because some patients who were treated, say, on a Q8 or a Q10 week interval ended up going much longer than that and coming back and being fine. And then there were others that were also on, a on the same interval with the same disease, and they missed maybe 
four weeks worth of visits before they felt comfortable coming in and they had a subretinal hemorrhage. And so I think this really points to what we were talking about earlier about the importance of really developing a more personalized treatment approach for these patients, because it's not one size fits all in any of these diseases. And so it was, it was fascinating to see. I will say that some of my diabetic patients, those are the ones that are extra challenging because they already struggle with compliance, even in non-pandemic times. And during this period of time, I did have several diabetic patients who came back who were maybe moderate NPDR or controlled PDR and were definitely not controlled anymore. A lot of vitreous hemorrhages, tractional retinal detachments that unfortunately we're going to now have to operate on. And I'm hoping that we will be able to regain vision. But as you and I both know, a lot of times, you know, you take um, you take steps back and, and some of that vision may be irrecoverable. So we'll, we'll have to see. But uh, we did, we tried very hard, our team and, and myself, we really try to contact and stay in frequent contact with all of our patients, especially our injection patients during this time period. So they knew that we were looking for them and waiting for them when they felt ready to come back. And again, just to give them the chance to be reassured about the hygiene practices, the social distancing practices at, at Baylor. And, um, and we've, we've kept some practices. Like, for example, we just like you, we try to really streamline these visits. Instead of going from technician to OCT to waiting room, back to the room to see the physician, we now really have compacted that so that they're sent right to OCT. They come right to the technician afterwards and they stay in the same room to see the retina specialist. And that's really uh, helped actually with our workflows as well from just from an operational standpoint. But I think that's helped make patients feel more reassured, more confident that they're going to be uh, safe in, in, in leaving their homes and coming to a medical facility. Well, it's certainly been a challenging time for, for our patients, for, for us as a profession, uh, for the world in general. But, but we're getting through it. Uh, uh, hopefully we're, we're at the tail end of this COVID pandemic. Uh, really enjoyed speaking with Christina Wang, one of my really close friends, and I really mean this, a rock star in retina. It's, it's always great to speak with you. Uh, thank you to the audience for joining us on this Retinal Physician podcast, and we look forward to seeing you at a future one. Thanks for having me, Peter. Great to speak with you.